Some would often wonder how someone who's filling the pulpit is led to a a certain verse to preach on or a certain subject to preach on. It's a very subjective thing. Sometimes I hear testimonies of men who have been called to preach, and I hear the the verses that they say the Lord used to call them, and I, I scratch my head because I, I'm amazed that they, they took that as the word from the Lord that then started them on their lifelong pursuit of preaching the gospel. It isn't exactly the passage that I would have thought of uh, that someone would have been called to preach. The Lord burdens the hearts of his people with certain passages at certain times, and that's often the way it is, especially for someone who's filling the pulpit. I have the luxury of not necessarily having to get bogged down into a series. Uh, Pastors tend to get more uh, structural in the messages that they preach. They go through books or they deal with topics, and the next week is the next message, and the next week is the next message. I have that luxury of being able to take something from the Lord each week that he burdens me. Sometimes it's through texting or or conversing with someone on the phone. Uh, A certain verse is mentioned and the Lord speaks to me and sometimes it the outline presents itself in 30 seconds. It just opens up. Other times I get a word from the Lord, and when I get down to begin to study, it is like plowing concrete to try to get an outline. It's a very subjective thing. Well, this week, it wasn't very subjective, because it's amaz- it amazes me how often one can be involved in spiritual work, like filling the pulpit or in, in seminary or whatever it may be, And in the pursuit of whatever needs to be done for the Lord, how dry and how cold your heart can be. People think that some of the the most glorious years of someone studying for the ministry are the years in seminary. And I've heard by, uh, through the testimony of many a man, that those are some of the most dry and difficult years because of the labor that goes into studying and, and the weariness of the flesh. It just drags the flesh down. So most would think that that would be such a great time and a reviving and you're always in the word and you're always studying. But it's the testimony of many men that the real reviving of the heart came once they got out of seminary. So just because you're involved in spiritual activity doesn't mean that your heart is always revived and blessed even preparing to come preach is no guarantee that you're going to have a week where you sense the leading and the, the nearness of the Spirit, whether it's the attack of the devil, whatever his plans are for the preacher or what uh, would happen or take place in the, in the house of the Lord. Just because you know that you have to fill the pulpit doesn't necessarily mean that your heart is always revived and blessed. And so I was thinking of this verse in particular this week about the need for a reviving and a quickening in the work of the Lord. And so I want to just spend a few moments tonight as we finish the Lord's Day considering the theme reviving a dry soul, reviving 
a dry soul. And we're going to use verse 25 of Psalm 119 uh, as our context. My soul cleaveth unto the dust. Quicken thou me according to thy word. I trust the Lord will uh, speak to us from his word this evening. Four things I want to want to mention in relation to this theme or this title. The first thing is that the nature of the saint is still prone to sin. The nature of the, of the saint is still prone to sin. Just because someone's trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ does not mean that they're immune to coldness and dryness and sin. David, King David, was a classic example of someone who knew the Lord, who walked with the Lord, so much so that the Lord said that his heart was fully given to the Lord. And yet, you may not find a, a clearer example of someone that as a saint still was prone to sin than King David. A few things I want to consider under this, that the nature of the saint is still prone to sin. And it's tied up in the word dust in our passage. My soul cleaveth unto the dust. Dust is an interesting thing when you come to consider how it's mentioned in the word. Dust is first mentioned on the sixth day of creation. Right from the very beginning of creation. You actually don't read about it until chapter 2 where there's more uh, information given about the creation of man. But in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we read, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. It's the first mention of the word dust. But the second mention, the next time dust is mentioned, is not very much longer after that. In the next chapter, uh, dust is actually associated with something else, not the creation of man, but man's fall into sin. And the next mention actually is the curse that came upon the serpent because of his deception and his leading and guiding Eve to be deceived regarding the fruit. In Genesis 3.14, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust Thou shalt eat all the days of thy life. So the dust that was used to create man, perfect man, in a perfect garden, now becomes the context of the curse of the serpent. Dust is now the dominion of the devil. And oh, how fallen man loves the realm of the old serpent. Our enemy knows what snares to lay at our feet to get us to stumble and to fall down to the cursed domain of his corruption. Praise the Lord that the day quickly approaches where according to Romans chapter 16 verse 20, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under our feet shortly. Until then, it often appears that the child of God is being crushed under the soul of the devil in his domain, in his realm the dust. The days of us languishing in the dust will soon be over. The dust of this place will soon give way to the soil 
of a new earth. And the old accuser of the brethren will be no longer. Until then, we lament with David in this passage. My soul cleaveth to the dust. So dust is first mentioned on the sixth day of creation. Man was created from it. Then it's mentioned to be uh, as being part of the curse upon the devil. But then we also read in that same context that dust is mentioned as being part of the curse upon man. In Genesis 3.19, just a few verses later, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and to dust shalt thou return. Two potential thoughts here, two interpretations of uh, what dust is meant to be here, as David is referring to it in this psalm. Some take it to be that it's referring to his trouble and his affliction, the struggles that he had in his, in his life, in his experience of walking with the Lord, both personal and outward. Uh, he expresses something similar in Psalm 22, verse 15, where he says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Because of his experience, dust is being referred to as uh, being brought because of the experience and because of the struggle being brought to to death itself. And so some would take his reference to uh, his soul cleaving to the dust as the effect that his struggles or that his afflictions were having upon him. But most interpret it and take it as applying to his own natural corruption his inclination toward the world and the body of flesh. And that's how I take it. I think that there's definitely a reference here to the struggle of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The greatest enemy, very often, is the enemy that's right within our own hearts. A Trojan horse ready to betray the work of grace and drag us back down to the world. That's what I think David's referring to here when he's talking about the dust. He's talking about his, the nature of the believer is still prone to sin. But then we see from this passage that that proneness to sin, secondly, cannot be easily shaken. It's not just that we have a proneness to sin, but that proneness is not something that is easily shaken. Because David says, my soul cleaveth unto the dust. It's not enough that his soul was in the dust. It would have been bad enough if David had said, my soul rolls in the dust. Maybe thinking that you roll right out of it or it's found in the dust. You can pick yourself up, right? Sometimes when we run out of energy and we can't go any longer, we even use the term crash and burn. You go right down and you're in the dust, but it's obviously understood. You pick yourself up. But that's not the word that David uses here. He says, my soul cleaveth to the dust. How's this word used in the Old Testament? Well, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, tells us how it's used. And we all know this passage. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Cleaving to the, to the wife in, in such a way that They can't be separated. That's the idea. So when David says, my soul cleaveth 
to the dust. He's actually saying, my, my soul sticks to the dust. It's not a, a temporary thing where I can just get up and leave it. I, I find myself always dealing with this dust. Ruth, in the book of Ruth, three times this word is used and it, is, it applies to three different entities that she had relationships with. In Ruth chapter 1 verse 14, and they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. Orpah gave Naomi a kiss and she left her for good. Ruth was stuck to her. And you know the passage that follows, where you go, I will go. Your people shall be my people and, and thy God, my God. Whatever was true of Naomi was true of Ruth because we are told that she clave unto her. That's the same word. My soul cleaveth unto the dust. Ruth then later in the story, in, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 8, Then Boaz said unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. The word for abide is our word for cleave. My soul cleaveth to the dust. Boaz was saying, You stick with my maidens. You don't need to go anywhere else. You just stay right there. Wherever the maidens were going, she was supposed to go. And then later that chapter, Ruth the Moabite said, And he said also unto me, Thou shalt keep fast by my young men until they have ended all my harvest. As she was gleaning, Boaz says, You stick by my young men that are harvest. Don't, don't go anywhere else. You just work with them. Follow them. Again, thou shalt keep fast. That's the word. So you can use that, that word in those ways. I'm sticking to the dust, David's saying. I'm cleaving to the dust. Our souls cleave or stick to the dust. Matthew Henry comments upon this verse. What does it mean to cleave to the dust? A deadness to holy duties. When he would do good, evil was present with him. God intimated that Adam was not only mortal but sinful when he said dust Thou art. David's complaint here is like St. Paul of a body of death that he carried about him. The remainders of indwelling corruption are a very grievous burden to a gracious soul. That was Matthew Henry. And that passage he's referring to, talking about St. Paul carrying the body of death around with him, Paul testified the same thing. It's, it's in much clearer language because it's in the epistles, but in essence, what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 7 is exactly what David is saying in Psalm 119 when he says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Evil is stuck to me. It's stuck to me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. We were just going through Romans chapter 7 as a family the other night. And was asking my boys questions about what does this mean? 
And it's, it's very difficult to follow. A, a law in your members that's at war with the law of your mind. And I told them, really, the, the word law means a power, an authority. There's an, a, an authority or a power that's in your members, that's in your body, and it's warring against the law of your mind. Earlier in the chapter, Paul says, the things I desire to do, I can't do. Because of this, this, this war, this law, this power. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in commenting on this chapter, says almost the exact same thing. I was encouraged. <laughs> I was encouraged. You're always encouraged when you read good men and commentators say what you just got done saying, not the other way around. Anyone can say what the commentators say. But when you say something and then you check someone like Lloyd-Jones and he says pretty much the same thing. You can kind of you know, wipe your brow. I'm, I'm in the ballpark at least. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones says. What then is he here saying? He says in essence, this is my experience. There seems to be a principle working in me. Indeed, it is so constant that I can call it a veritable law. There seems to be a rule of action within me, which works in such a definite matter that it is a, virtually a kind of law. And it seems to determine, to govern, and to control what takes place within me. I find the law. Or we can look at the matter in the following way. Paul virtually says, what I find is this, that invariably when I would do good, evil is present with me. This is something which seems to operate in me much as laws operate in nature. As the night follows the day, as you get spring, summer, autumn, winter with such regularity, I find that as certainly as I want to do good, equally certain is evil there. That is a law of the man's life and his experience. It is so regular so certain, he says, that it seems to be an absolute law. That is what David means when he says, my soul cleaves to the dust. David sees there's something in his nature. It isn't just that dust is sticking to him. That happens as we make our way through life. The amazing thing is that he wants to stick to the dust. It's exactly what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7. That's why I say it's not just the nature of the saint that's still prone to sin. That proneness of sin cannot be easily shaken because it's the bent. It's the nature, the fallen nature that we have that causes Paul to say, O wretched man that I am. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the Apostle Paul calling himself a wretched man. So we see the proneness to sin cannot be easily shaken. The third thing that I want to consider tonight is that the word of God is given to help us remedy a sinful nature. It's given to us to help us remedy or to fight against a sinful nature. The psalm says, My soul cleaveth unto the dust, Quicken thou me according to thy word. Quicken thou me according to thy word. The word of God. 
It's given to us to help us as we struggle against a sinful nature. The amazing thing is that even Christ himself, when he was tempted, used the word of God. And he had no sinful nature. If Christ, who had no sinful nature, used the word of God when the devil attacked him, of how much greater necessity does it befall us, who have a sinful nature, to be meditating and filling our minds with the word of God? Matthew chapter 4 This is right on the heels of God saying about Christ, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 4 says, And then Jesus Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these these stones be made bread. Right, Tempting him at at the... the point of the weakest part of his human nature hadn't eaten in 40 days and he was hungry and the temptation came. Command that these stones be turned into bread. Christ could have just said, be gone or no, or or rebuked him in some way. Verse 4 tells us, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. It's taken from Deuteronomy chapter 8. The commandments, all the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land, inherit the promise. Right? The only way that we could inherit the promise is if Christ was faithful when, the, when Satan was attacking him. And so it isn't just that he's saying man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Because the context of that verse is inheriting the promise in Deuteronomy chapter 8. It goes on to say, And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee and to prove thee and to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knowest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, out of the Lord, out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. The context is going in, inheriting the promises. Christ is the one inheriting the promise for us. And the devil comes and attacks him. And he quotes the scripture, not just saying that we live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, but if we ever hope to inherit the promise, it's because of our Savior and his his enduring the temptation that was brought against him by the devil. Then in verse 5, it says, The devil taketh up into a holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, Cast thyself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee. Now the devil is, is trying to bring his next attack. He's using the word of God. Oh, how deceptive that is. How many a man filled with the, the, the power of the devil steps behind the pulpits of our land and uses the word of God to accomplish wickedness? And corruption. Even the devil. Attacking Christ. Brings the word. He's twisting. He's corrupting. 
the word. He's a master at it. Yea, hath God said, he shall not eat of the tree of the uh, 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 of every tree of the garden. He, he's a master at twisting and corrupting the word. He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Go ahead and do it. You, you even have scriptural warrant. Jesus said unto him, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. This is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massa. Ye shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he hath commanded thee. And thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest go in and possess the good land. You want to inherit the promise? Again, another reference to inheriting. Inheritance. Winning that, that, that inheritance that the Lord offers. It's Christ saying, if... If the inheritance is to be won, I must quote the scriptures. I must seek the Lord. I must be holy. So it isn't just that he's using a scripture to combat the twisted scripture that the devil's bringing. It's in the context of his work for his people. Then again, the devil taketh them up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth them all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, all these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Again, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, just a few verses before the one we just read. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and serve him, and shalt swear by his name, and ye shall not go up, go after other gods, the gods of the people which are round about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee. No inheritance. It's the negative version. It's the same, it's the same theme running through every one of the scriptures that Christ came into the world to win the inheritance of his people. And every scripture that he quoted was from the book of Deuteronomy and it had to do with being perfect and keeping the commandments of the Lord in order to win the inheritance of God's people. That's where Adam fell. Adam didn't keep the commandments of the Lord. He broke the commandments of the Lord and he could not win the inheritance for his people. He brought the curse of sin upon his people that's what we deal with. That's why our souls cleave to the dust. Even Christ, who didn't even have a nature that was cleaving to the dust, resorted to the word of God as a reminder of the great promises that are due to his people because of his obedience. All taken from, from the book of Deuteronomy. The word of God is given to us to help us remedy a sinful nature. But then the last thing we see tonight is the effect of the word is a revived soul. My soul cleaveth unto the dust. Quicken thou me according to thy word. Quicken thou me. Make alive. Breathe life into the soul that is cleaving and that is stuck to the dust. Don't just, it's not a matter of dust me off. Breathe life into the heart. 
and get me away from being stuck to the dust of the world. Hebrews chapter 4, the passage that we read. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and of spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's specifically as the gospel is brought forth from the scriptures that the reviving comes. You say, well, here it just says the word of God. Shouldn't any passage from the Bible have that effect? Well, every word of God is pure and every word of God is quick and alive. But from the very context of this verse, you'll see how, what Paul means when he talks about the need for the word of God. The very beginning of the chapter, the context in which this passage This verse in Hebrews 4.12 about the word of God. The context that it's found in tells us, Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached, the word preached, did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So you have the word. You have the preached word, and it's also referred to as the gospel. Now, in the immediate context, it's talking about the Jews that rejected the gospel in the wilderness. That the Lord said, I swear in my wrath, they will not enter into my rest. They are not going to be in glory. They will not enter into my rest. Because the gospel was preached to them. It was the word, it was preached And it's called the gospel. That's the context of this verse. The word of God is quick and powerful. Faith cometh by hearing, yes. And hearing by the word, that's true. But it isn't enough to just hear the word. It's not enough just to hear the word. It must be mixed with faith in them that hear it. Faith in Christ. Faith in the gospel promise. Faith in the one who because he could swear by none greater, he swore by himself. How many of the Jews in the day of Christ no doubt had large portions of the scriptures memorized and yet still were in unbelief? Here's something to think about. How often did Judas not only hear the word, but yet he preached the word? Because Christ sent them out to preach. Yet that word was not mixed with faith. It's so obvious from the context. It isn't just the word. It's the word mixed with faith. It's the message of the gospel. Look at what follows that passage. For the word of God is quick and powerful. In verse 13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifested in his sight, But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. The profession of faith. Faith in Christ. 
Faith in the, in the one who is set forth in the preaching of the gospel. That same gospel that was mentioned in verse 2. For unto them, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It isn't just the message from the book. It's the message from the book accompanied by the power of the Holy Ghost as it pertains to the gospel of Christ. It isn't just some random passage that the apostles preached when they went out preaching Christ. They preached the message of the gospel. They preached that men and women are sinners, that men and women are fallen in Adam, that men and women have souls that by nature are cleaving to the dust. They need Christ. That was the message preached to the, to the Jews in the wilderness so long ago that they clearly rejected. I think when you go through the Old Testament, some of those strange passages like Esau denying his birthright or someone that's in the line of Judah that chooses to not have children because he doesn't want to be part of the promise that was given. I think you find that all these strange behavioral things that the Lord mentions in those passages aren't just put in there to give a weird account of some strange story. They're all given to us as another example of those that heard the word, but it was not mixed with faith in those that heard it. No doubt Isaac told Jacob and Esau about the promise of a Savior. No doubt Esau knew that the birthright was his. And yet Esau sold out his birthright for a bowl of stew. And it says he ate it, he got up, and he just left as if it meant nothing to him. What is that? Is that just some weird story that you hear? Like, yeah, that's weird. That shows you the hardness of a soul that is dead in sin. That even though he heard of the promise of a Savior. And even though he heard that that promise was given to Abraham and to his own father Isaac, Esau wanted nothing to do with the promise. It meant more to him to fill his belly with a bowl of stew and to just get up and walk out as if it meant nothing. It isn't just that he sold his birthright. The word, the promise, was not mixed with faith. And, and there, are these, there are these passages sprinkled through the Old Testament that show weird behavior related to the line of Christ, right? And, and it even goes the other way, right? You think of Tamar, that she, she understood that the line of the blessing and the promise came through Judah. And Judah was dragging his feet to produce an heir, Someone that would carry on his his lineage. And then Tamar ends up entering into that line with Judah to the point that Judah understood what her motivation was because he says she's more righteous than I. Strange, strange stories. But it goes the other way. People working their way into the line because their trust was in the gospel. 
It isn't just a rejection of the gospel. It's an embracing of the gospel. That's how Rahab, the harlot, finds her way into the line of Christ. Ruth, the Moabitess, the great-great-grandmother of King David. People that because they trusted in the promise, make their way into the line. And those that reject the promise of the gospel, that hear the word, it's not mixed with faith, they walk away. The Old Testament, it's filled with stories that are not just random stories. It's the same exact thing Paul is saying in Hebrews chapter 4. The word did not profit them, not being mixed with faith. So I say, when, I, when, when we consider that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, what is it that the Holy Ghost uses to breathe life into a dead soul? It's the preaching of the gospel. What is it that they rejected at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 4 that Paul uses as an example? Let us fear, lest we do the same exact thing. It was a rejection of the promise. It was a rejection of the gospel. It isn't just the word. It's the preaching of the gospel that must, it must be the focus of the saint. As we make our way through life, you will find that the, the times where your heart is revived the most isn't just as you're meditating upon the word. I have read times in the morning during my Bible time, I have read chapters where I walk away and it, my heart is stone cold dead and dry. And there's other times where someone mentions one verse about my Savior and reminds me what he's done for me. It's like someone ignites the gas stove. Whoosh! Immediately the, the fire's burning, right? And, and I mention it so often, I almost am ashamed to mention again, but the two on the road to Emmaus is the greatest example of exactly what David is praying here in Psalm 119. O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, Luke 24, verses 25 through 32. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things? It isn't just that they didn't understand the word in general that the prophets were giving. Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What is he talking about? Is it just generally the word? No. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? It was the gospel that Christ was telling them they were missing. They may have even been meditating and memorizing the word. And they're walking to Emmaus sad and depressed and discouraged. Because in all their reading of the word, they missed Christ. They missed Christ. They missed the gospel. They did exactly, they were doing in essence, exactly what the Jews did in the wilderness. That the Lord said, you shall not enter into my rest. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his grave? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, the work of Christ. And they drew nigh to the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us. I'm telling you, when Christ 
is opened to you and you see Christ again in the word and the heart is being revived. I don't blame Peter for saying, let's build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I blame him for putting Christ on the same level as Moses and Elijah, but I don't blame him for wanting to have a tent to stay in that place. There have been times where I have been sitting under the preaching of the word of God that I would want to set a tent right up in the service and say, I'm not going, I don't want to go home. Such was the the sense of the presence and the power of the Holy Ghost in that meeting. And that was no doubt what these men on on their way to Emmaus were feeling. Sad, discouraged, depressed. Christ says, you missed me in the scriptures. Let me show you where I am and why these things had to happen. And beginning at Moses, he he preaches the person and work of Christ to these men. And then he's going to go and they said, no, abide with us. The fire's already burning. For it's toward evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break it and gave to them. And their eyes were opened and they knew him. And he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? The word of God. But what was it? What specifically was it that was being opened to them from the scriptures? Not just doctrine in general. I would, I would go so far as to say these men had their heads filled with Bible doctrine. You can spend your whole entire life dealing with truth from the scriptures and not have one lick of flame igniting your soul. What was it about the word that was reviving their hearts? It was when Christ showed them all the things concerning himself. Oh, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? What's another way of saying that? Were not our hearts quickened by the word? It's exactly what David's saying. Was it just the word? No, it was the gospel and it was the heart of faith understanding what Christ has done for the soul that revives and quickens the heart. Reviving a dry soul. I had a dry soul this past week. You can can be busy planning so many things in service for the Lord, right? Martha, cumbered about Cumbered about with much serving. (laughs) And she's busy serving. And Christ said, Mary has done that one thing needful. It won't be taken from her. Hearts revived with a sight of the gospel, with a sight of Christ. My soul cleaves to the dust. Quicken thou me according to thy word. I trust the Lord will bless the preaching of his word to us tonight for Jesus' sake. Let's bow in a word of prayer.
Our Father, we're thankful for so many clear examples of those whose hearts were quickened and revived as they meditated upon the promises contained in the gospel. Lord, we thank Thee for Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Thankful for His finished work. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and entered into His glory? Father, we thank Thee that faith has been given to us. It's a gift of God. We confess to Thee that the, the, the source of faith is not our own hearts and not our own souls. That our eyes have been opened to our need for Christ and the beauties of the gospel. Oh, Father, help us in all of our searching, in all of our reading, in all of our studying, yea, in all of our labor, to not miss Christ. Help us to make much of the gospel and much of the Savior and what He's done for sinners, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll end our service this evening by standing and singing hymn number 449, Complete in Thee, hymn 449. Let's stand together as we sing.